Welcome to God's Playbook with your host, Father Rico Passero. It's a 20, 10, 5, touchdown! Touchdown! Let's play ball. Friends, welcome back to God's Playbook. I can think of no better way to start off this new month of October on this feast of St. Therese of Lisieux than to have our dear friend, Father Chris Kulig, a Carmelite priest, to come and speak to us about St. Therese, who, of course, is a good friend of God's Playbook. Father Chris, welcome back, my friend. It's good to be back, Father Rico. Happy feast day to you and all the Carmelites throughout the world who really look to St. Therese to help to grow in your own spirituality. Thank you so much. Today is, uh, interestingly, the 125th anniversary of her death. God bless St. Therese, and God bless all the Carmelites, those ordained, those professed, and those third orders as well. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about Therese, about her life, about how she helped to develop prayer, becoming a doctor of our church. Father Chris, who better than you to enlighten us about St. Therese and helping us to come to understand the secrets of this humble teenage nun who loved God with all her heart? Um, We're so blessed to have you. And Father Chris, please do share both your love and and passion for St. Therese with us listeners. I'd be happy to, Father Rico. I think there might be more scholars better than I, but uh, I've... uh... I spent a lot of time with her readings, and I I have a great affection for this particular saint in our Carmelite constellation in heaven, as it were. So I'll be happy to talk about her. Uh, for those who are new to Therese, it's it's good to know that she was born in 1873 in uh, Normandy, France, in the town of Alençon. She was the ninth of nine children to Louis and Zelie Martin, who were also recently canonized. Uh, Four of her brothers and sisters, two brothers and two sisters, died in childbirth. One, Helene, was actually six. The others were quite young. And Therese actually was feared that she might not make it to adulthood. Uh, However, Zelie found a a good wet nurse by the name of Rose Tylee, who took care of her for that first year and got her strength up. So, The family could raise her. So she was raised in an intensely Catholic family. Her father, Louis, had thought about religious vocation with a religious group of St. Bernard that actually worked with the St. Bernard dogs in the Alps, you know, helping out the avalanche victims, uh, as it were. That type of monastery really separated from the world. And her mother also had investigated religious life in a woman's community, but her health was not good enough for it. So they found each other, and they married, and they gave the uh, church some very saintly daughters, uh, all five of whom entered religious life. Uh, So Therese was really surrounded by uh, a family that put faith and their parish church at the center of their life. In fact, her Sisters would say if their father taught them two things, it was respect for Sunday and contempt for the world, which is kind of an ironic thing because her father worked as a jeweler and watchmaker, and her mother worked making a very worldly thing, Alison Lace. So they 
use the things of the world, but it just goes to show you that their contempt was in the sense that they lived uh, an austere life. They were actually quite a, a middle-class bourgeoisie family, but they had God first in their life, and everything else was in relationship to their relationship to God. And the daughters picked up on this and embraced it, and they taught each other. In fact, uh, Zelie said her daughter, Therese, was one of the more precocious. Uh, unfortunately, Zelie died of uh, breast cancer when Therese was just four, an important part of her life because it led to a later suffering, because Therese took Pauline, the, the second daughter, as her second mother. Celine, the fourth child that made it to adulthood, took Marie, the eldest, as her second mother. Poor Leonie, who was in the middle, the one sister who did not become a Carmelite, she became a Visentendine, uh, seemed to be kind of on her own. And that, I think, was part of her suffering, that she kind of had a more solitary journey than her sisters. But the truth was that they really loved each other. They were a tight-knit family. And when Zelie died, they moved from Alençon to Le Joux, where Zelie's brother Isidore lived with his wife, Celine. And they had two daughters, Marie and Jean. The cousins were almost like second sisters. They were that close. And sometimes it is confusing because Therese had a sister named Celine and an aunt named Celine, a sister named Marie and a cousin named Marie. And her cousin Marie actually also joined the Carmel as well. So you had this highly Catholic family uh, with women who are embracing religious vocation. Therese's vocation, uh, as I said, had a, 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 a part that was marked with suffering when Pauline went to the Carmel because she lost her mother once, and then the sister who was her second mother was now leaving. And so when Therese would visit her, things had changed dramatically. She didn't have the intimate conversations that she was used to having with Pauline when she was at home. And so when she was about nine, she suffered probably a psychological break that was probably quite harrowing. The stories that are accounted almost remind one of the Gerasene demoniac. What happened to set it off was Isidore mentioned her mother and thought that Therese, five years later, had made peace with her mother's death. Well, it set her off on a illness that they had no idea what was going on. She was bedridden, given to getting up and throwing herself off the bed. They were really worried that this might kill her. Something happened in between, though. When Pauline made her vows, it was like the disease went away for a day. Therese was fine. She got up that morning. She went to the monastery, witnessed the vows, because she was there with Pauline. But once she wasn't able to connect with her, it was back to the problem that she had. Uh, a miracle did happen uh, that was probably a Marian apparition in Therese's life, where she saw the Virgin Mother through a statue smile on her. Therese was very secret about this, or she didn't want people to know, but Marie picked up on it that she had a Marian vision. And so the third mother, Mother Mary, was the one to give her the healing she sought. 
And from there, she just continued to grow in love of the Lord. Uh, so much so that Pauline would prepare her for her first communion. And when you read in her letters about her preparation, this wasn't just a few classes at the parish. Every day for about two or three months, she would write down in her spiritual notebook the sacrifices she made, the little prayer she said. This was several weeks of intense spiritual preparation at the hand of Pauline, who would write weekly letters about her updates and give more pages for her journal up until the moment she made her first communion. So when she talks about this mystical experience of being one with Jesus, that first kiss, like being a drop in the ocean of our Lord, it was something that she had opened her heart to for months. But this was the intensity she had at age 10 of wanting to have a life with the Lord. That was one of the first major experiences. The next happened in Christmas of 1886 when she was almost 14 years old. She had a Christmas conversion where she was excited to get the little gifts on Christmas Eve that her father would put in her shoes, pieces of fruit and other things like that. And her father made the comment, oh, thank goodness, this will be the last year. Therese was very sensitive. And Celine thought, Therese, don't go down there. You'll just burst into tears. You can't handle it. it the spirit gave her a jump in maturity that day where she was able to go down and simply enjoy unwrapping those gifts in front of Louis, her queen, Louis, her king, pardon me, she being her little queen, the pet names they had for each other. And from there, it wasn't soon until she entered the monastery. Now, it must be said, one of the letters she wrote, uh, I think is indicative of the great trust she had in God's love and the love of her family. Because she writes to Pauline a few, several years later, that Pauline, you were always mother's favorite, and Marie, she was father's favorite. Now, this almost seems like a mortal sin to say that parents have favorite children, but that wasn't a problem for Therese, because Therese trusted in her father's love for her. Doesn't matter if her king had a favoritism for Marie, she would always be his queen. I think this is a really freeing thing to say that our relationships are all different. You really can't compare them, that affections are a gift from God. And I think parents want to be equitable with their children, but they should be free to have their own affections. Therese says that very clearly in her letters. And I think because of her trust in God's love, her experience of God's love, this was okay. As she would say, all his grace, all the loves of her life were unique and special and different. Each of her sisters, each of her cousins. You read her letters and her story of a soul, and she is just uh, a young woman oozing with the love of God, is how I experience her writings. And she would grow to see the hand of God in everything, even suffering. Because a few years later, she was convinced that by age 15, she too should enter the Carmel. In fact, she wanted to enter at age nine when Pauline was in there. And the prioress, Mother Marie de Gonzague, saw a spiritual maturity in her that she wanted to foster, that she was willing to take on a 15-year-old. 
but as Therese would say in retrospect, she had to enter Carmel under the threat of the sword, meaning those who felt she was too young. And she would even say she understood why these people felt had their qualms. The first was the superior. Canandela Tourette made a complaint to Mother Marie de Gonzague on the very day and in the liturgy of her acceptance that if anything went wrong, it would be the fault of Mother Marie de Gonzague. Therese's family was livid at him. Therese focused on God's love. It didn't faze her a bit. She was happy to be in Carmel. And to jump ahead, Canandela Tourette, when she applied for her vows a few years later, said, I still think you're too young, and I really don't support it, but since the bishop has given permission, you may get, you may have your vows. He didn't even support her making her vows. It was a couple years later, when she was 18, and the convent, the monastery, was suffering a flu epidemic that had everyone but the three youngest uh, in the community suffering from flu, that he saw Therese's yeoman's work, how she took care of her sisters, you know, in one of the most difficult situations. And that's when he finally realized, yes, her vocation is real. But to go back to how she got there, she went to the Bishop Huguenin, who asked her to wait. And then in 1888, the family made a pilgrimage to Rome, a rather famous trip uh, where the chancellor of the diocese, uh, Monsieur Revanerie, was also on the pilgrimage. And I think he saw something of Therese's seriousness. And Therese, I think, also saw something of some of the behavior of some of the priests on the trip that convinced her that she needed to pray for priests as part of her vocation. So she goes to the Pope, Leo XIII, and with the urging of her sister and Mother Marie de Gonzague, breaks the silence where she's simply supposed to accept the Pope's gift and asks him to allow her to enter the Carmel. It was kind of an uncomfortable situation because the Pope knew nothing of this. The Chancellor explains to her the situation, explains to the Pope the situation, and he says, if God wills it, you will enter. The guards had to carry her away. She was so distraught. And one of the guards was so moved by the experience he said that this was a saint he had been with that day. The trip seemed to be fruitless, except for the fact that at the end, the chancellor said he will do all in his power that she enter. Are you here? Although the trip seemed to prove fruitless, the chancellor, Monsieur Revenery, saw Therese's saintliness, and he promised to do all he could to help her enter the monastery at age 15. Therese had wanted to enter by Christmas, but the bishop sent a letter in early uh, January that she could enter that year. Uh, she was supposed to enter, I think, in January or February, but the Carmel, which has some austere penances during Lent, asked her to wait until Easter time. So she enters in about 15 years and three months' time, which I often say to people nowadays, do you know any young ladies out there at age 15 who want to give their life to religious life and monastic living? They're probably waiting for their sweet 16 birthday party, but not Therese. She wanted the life of Carmel, 
with its structure and its sacrifices to pray for the salvation of souls. And that's really, I think, the, the heart of her ministry. She prayed for a few priests there that were given to her as spiritual brothers, and she made this oblation to merciful love, which was all about sacrifice for those souls in the world who need it most. And she really, I think, embodied the traditions of Teresa and John. John's detachment from worldly goods and Teresa wanting her prayer to saying that prayer should always result in good works. Teresa's prayer resulted in the good works of her loving relationships with her sisters. This, I think, is the heart of her little way. That uh, Therese would reach out to the lost sheep of the monastery. Now, one would think, in a monastery, are there really lost sheep? Well, in a community of 24, 25 women, there were some who needed a little more love and care than others. Uh, there was one sister who was working in the laundry who was probably a little bit mentally off. Therese was the one who volunteered to help her out and work with her. There was aged Sister St. Pete who needed help from the choir to the dinner table every night, and Therese would help get her there and cut up her food. And after several years, she got a smile out of Sister St. Pete. There, there was one nun, uh, Sister Maria of Jesus, who was just a few years older than Therese. And Therese said of her that she had a natural antipathy. I think Therese is great about feelings because she's just very forthright and honest that somehow this nun rubbed her the wrong way, something about the way she ground her teeth. But Therese didn't look with disdain on her. In fact, she looked at her with a great smile of love. She would go out of her way to be very kind to this sister. And that was a sacrifice she would make. Indeed, the part of the sacrifice was spending less time with her own blood sisters, Marie and Pauline, her cousin Marie, and then her sister Celine, who entered after their father Louis died, that they would say that they felt hurt by the fact that she spent time with the other sisters and less time with them. But that was the kingdom vision she lived out. She felt we couldn't be a family here. We need to be a family of Carmelites. And that means not having cliques. It means sharing our love with the one who needs it most. One of the most poignant things, I think, about her life is uh, what she said to Pauline when she died, because she died of tuberculosis in 1897. And while she was convalescing, her sisters wrote down the little jewels that she shared with them. And one of the things that she shared with Pauline was all the things she was doing there to help her grow in religious life, because as a child of uh, a family of means, there were certain life skills she didn't learn. So she had to learn sewing and cooking and some of the things that others might take for granted. And she used her free time to improve in these things. Pauline didn't know it. She thought she was slumming. And as they had this heart to heart, they both realized that they didn't know everything which I think is amazing. Even in a cloistered monastery, you don't know what's going on in everyone's life. I think this is one of the great things we can learn from her is that we have to have great understanding that even she was fighting battles, and we all are, and to be compassionate with each other. 
Therese embraced that compassion like no other saint I know. But she said to Pauline, something that always moves my heart, said, it got to the point where you no longer knew me, which for the woman who was her second mother, a soulmate of sorts, that had to be hard to say. But it was for a greater good. It was for the life of their monastery and sharing her little way. And I think if there's one story about her little way that I think is most indicative, it's something I call walking the wreath. What is walking the wreath? Well, it comes from an experience that happened to her that was shared during her canonization process. Mother Genevieve, the first prioress of that community, which was really a young community. You might remember in an earlier podcast that Carmelites were outlawed in France until 1841. It wasn't until 1850 that this monastery was founded, and so it was rather a rather young monastery and a little lax in some of its spiritual uh, discipline. But Mother Genevieve was the first prioress, and she went home to God during Therese's time there. And during the funeral, Therese, as sacristan, arranged all the wreaths. Well, her family, who again had means, sent very beautiful wreaths. One of the nuns who was perhaps having a bad day or who was a difficult personality just walked up to Therese in the chapel, in the chapel, and said, Sure, you put your family wreaths right up front. People were shocked at how nasty she was. They were probably even doubly shocked at Therese's response. She just smiled, went to the back of the chapel, got a simple moss wreath, and took it to the front and gave it pride of place, and simply smiled at her sister. I think that story, what I call walking the wreath, and you're in a difficult situation, walk the wreath. Don't enter into people's dysfunction. Simply smile and take the higher path. Therese seemed to always do this. In fact, one of her great reflections on the words of our Lord, and she has many of them in her book, was that Jesus gave the first commandment, which was an old commandment, love God and love your neighbor as self. Both of them are in Leviticus. Nothing new, really, just an ordering of the old law. But when she reads John, she says, oh, in John 13, 33 to 35, I've given you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. So Therese picks up on this nuance. This is not love your neighbor as yourself. Love as I, God in the flesh, have loved you. And Therese rightly says, you know, that is beyond me. But God's not going to command anything that we cannot do, so God must do it for us. This is really the heart of her little way, is surrendering the will to God so God can love through us. And I suppose at that moment of walking the reeds, she probably felt, this is God loving through me, not really me loving at all. One of the things she says that is essential to love, she puts it down into three pieces. Loving means accepting the faults of others, not being surprised at their weaknesses, and celebrating every virtue. That, I think, is a beautiful way of the challenge of love. To know each other's faults and say, yeah, I accept you, faults and all. Whether you clack your teeth, you need help going to the dinner table, or you need help in the linen room, I'm here to help you. Uh, and I'll never say, I, can you believe she did that? No, no, I, she does that all the time. And I, and I accept that, that they have these weaknesses. And celebrating every virtue. 
not being dismayed. Well, how long will this last? No, when people do good, she's there to cheer them on. This is the gift of the little way. But I think at its heart is that she allowed God to work through her. That was really her gift. Uh, it's a difficult road, but, but it's a very simple road. One that I think she has many images to use, but one of the more famous ones is that of the elevator. That I cannot get up to God alone, so he will send an elevator and he will lift me up. And that's the experience of the grace of Therese. Lastly, I would say that her popularity comes, I think, from the accessibility of her writings. Uh, I was blessed to spend the pandemic plowing through the thousand pages of her letters and letters to her. There's about 240 or some letters that she has written that we can take edification from. But when you read her letters and then read her autobiography, Story of a Soul, in chronological order in the middle of her letters, it reads just like another letter. So it's like she's writing a letter to us, not just her sister Pauline, but to the whole world of how to let God love through you. And that, I suggest to you, is the heart of her little way and why she's so popular today. Brother Chris, it's very evident that by your presence and your teaching today, we certainly see how God is loving us through your witness and certainly through the witness of St. Therese of Lisieux. We thank you for taking the time to be with us, and I encourage all of our listeners to grow in their love for God by doing these beautiful things like she, to recognize one another's faults and look past them, to be compassionate towards one another, and celebrating everyday virtues. So perhaps, Father Chris, on this great day and this great feast of St. Therese, may I ask that you give us a blessing as a Carmelite priest, invoking the intercession of St. Therese to help us to grow in our little ways as we come to know and love God more and more each day. Be happy to you, Father Rico. So let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. Heavenly Father, you gave us St. Therese to teach us her way of spiritual childhood to lead us back to you. So we ask through the intercession of St. Therese, may Almighty God bless all those listening to this podcast, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. St. Therese, pray, pray for, for us. us. Our Lady of Mount Carmel, pray, pray for, for us. us. Friends, on behalf of Father Chris and myself, we wish to extend to you a very blessed day. For God's Playbook, I'm Father Rico. God loves you and so do I. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us on our Ko-Fi, K-O-F-I, or GoFundMe at God's Playbook Podcast. Thanks and God bless.